Everybody doing well today? Good. Love it. Okay. uh, Our theme verse this year, uh, I'm going to keep this before us, uh, but you are a chosen people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, uh, God's special possession, his treasure, uh, declaring his praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. I mean, you talk about an incredible verse that defines who we are and why we're here, why we get out of bed in the morning. Um, it's right there. And everything that we're going to do this year on Sunday mornings is going to be to push that deeper into our hearts. Um, so right now we're looking at Micah 6, verse 8. After that, we will be going to Numbers, the book of Numbers in the Old Testament, which is where God forms this people and makes them into the people of God. And then after that, we are going to go to the Minor Prophets and look at what the prophets have to say to God's people uh, when they forgot who they were and call them back to remind them, um, this is who you are as God's chosen people, a holy nation. So Micah 6, verse 8, we started last week. And I don't know if you know this, but we have a full-time missions pastor at Crossroads, Matt Stoll. We have a full-time city pastor at this church, uh, Jeremiah Wiseman. And the reason for this is because Crossroads does not exist for itself. We don't exist to just uh, hold worship services on Sunday mornings, So we can circle the wagons and wait for heaven. We exist for the city of Grand Rapids. We exist for the nations of the world. And this vision that Matt and Jeremiah have for our church, it's not reduced to us just finding this professional class of missionaries who we're going to support It actually begins with us because we are God's people. We are a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of missionaries. And their goal is to raise us up, uh, to, to know that call that God has put on us, to feel the weight of this responsibility, to know the joy, the privilege of getting up every morning to think today is another day to partner with God to bring his shalom to chaos, to reach lost people. And and, and how do we do that? Well, this is the verse that they have chosen uh, for their area, Micah 6, verse 8. And here it is. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And when he's talking good there, he's not just saying, ah, that's good. (laughs) Uh, He's talking about what is Eden good. What brings Eden goodness to our world? It's when God's people do what's required of them. Do justice. Love mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. So last week we looked at uh, to do justice. Hey, I'll be the first to admit, like, uh, that was a prophetic word. Um, It felt like the two-by-four came out, and I got whacked over the head a little bit. And I just want to say, that was good for me. That was good for us. Um, I mean, sometimes I I, I sit and I look at the climate that we're in right now, um, and 
it feels like we're almost in a civil war these days in our country, minus the guns. And it's so tempted in this to take sides uh, like our culture is. We as the church don't get to do that. Uh, God is going to bring his justice, his mercy, his kingdom, not through a government, but through his church. And it was good to be reminded of that last week. Um, This week, we're going to look at to love mercy. That word for mercy in the original language is my favorite word in the Bible. So I'm excited about this this, today. Um, It's it's the Hebrew word hesed, and we've talked about that that word. In fact, to say it, you you got to, you know, like... You're getting out a hawker or something. It's chesed. Um, come on, you guys want to repeat after me right now, don't you? Chesed. Not bad. Um, I'm not going to be as bashful as Tim Gombas is. I mean, he, he kind of hinted at that, like he's, he's kind of bashful to throw out Hebrew words. Um, the reason I'm not bashful is because the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And just like in missions... When we take the gospel to another people group, we give up our culture, we give up our language, and we learn the culture and the language of the people that we are ministering to. And the same is true about understanding the Bible. Like, we have to get into the world of the Bible, into its culture, which includes its language. And some of the pastors on staff have mentioned in talking to some of you that, um, you know, Rod just likes to sound smart in throwing out these Greek and Hebrew words. Listen, if you think that, you you don't know me that well. Um, But you guys actually pay me to study this all week, to mine it, so I can know the text in its context, so we can apply it to our context. Capiche? Hey, I just had to get that out, okay? That's, you know. Um, and, and, and this word is, is, is proof why we, we, we need to do some of this hard work. Because here, to, to love mercy, um, it's translated, has said, is translated as mercy. In other places, it's translated as love. Because really, that's the, the, the root meaning of the word love. But even today, like, what does love mean? And, and this, this kind of love uh, is the love that I think Paul has in mind in Ephesians 3 when he says the love of God in Christ, how deep and far and wide and rich. That's why sometimes this word has said is translated as loving kindness, sometimes steadfast love, sometimes unfailing love, sometimes this undying loyalty, Uh, sometimes unfailing kindness, and you get the picture. It's a word that's so rich in meaning that one English word can't really um, do justice to it. But if you want a definition, hesed is this undeserved, unmerited, unconditional, unfailing, unending, kind of love. If you want a real life example of this love, uh, 
from the Bible, it's, it's, it's Ruth and Naomi. Um, Naomi is, is, is Ruth's mother-in-law, and they both have to deal with the tragedy of, of, of losing their husbands. And when this happens, Naomi wants to return to her homeland and, and, and leave her daughter-in-law behind. But, but Ruth says to her, I will not let you go. That's a said. It's, it, it's a love that says, I'm not forsaking you, I'm not leaving you, I'm bound to you, no matter the cost, no matter the offense, no matter the circumstance, no matter the hurt, I will not let you go. That's a said. I feel like I get to experience Hesed every day in my house with my dog. <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, um, but I, yeah. <laughs> He's entered old age. That's Bentley. Old English sheepdog. That dog loves me. That dog does not leave my side. That dog knows every one of my coming and goings. And that dog has an innate sense to know every time I'm about ready to go for a jog. And he tears our whole house up because he thinks he's coming with me. And uh, I'll take him in the summer. I'll take him when it's 95. And that, that, that poor dog, he will have to put up with me for all those miles. He's practically, you know, right there, almost having a heart attack. That loyalty, that's a said right there. You guys know it. You guys, for some reason, God put so much said in those creatures. Um, Jeremiah 2 verse 2 reminds me of this. Uh, Jeremiah 2 verse 2 says, this is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion. I remember the said of your youth, how as a bride you loved me, and you just followed me. You're right by my side in that hot, hot desert. Now, the, the, the place in which Hesed is birth is a covenant. Hesed is always birth out of covenant. And, and Hesed is, is, is the actual glue that, that, that keeps a covenant together. And covenant isn't something that, that we really talk about. It's, it's, it's kind of foreign to our world. But, but covenant is simply when, when one person binds their heart and life to another person, where they're just bound till death do they part, bound. I mean, how many of your relationships right now are covenant-based? Not many. Because in our world, relationships are, are, are consumer-based. We choose relationship as long as it serves us. I like you because you're attractive. I like you because you have money. I like you because you make me laugh. I like you because you're popular. I like you uh, because you make me happy. Well, what happens when that person is no longer attractive? What happens when that person no longer makes you happy or makes you laugh or serves your needs um, or, or, or your ends? The relationship is done. It's a consumer-based relationship. It's all based on what you do for me. 
even our most meaningful relationships, um, marriage and immediate family, are consumer-based. I was recently talking to a friend uh, from college, and her brother, who's a pretty famous pastor, hasn't talked with the entire family for five years. That's a consumer-based relationship. In the ancient world, every meaningful relationship was established and rooted in a covenant where, where you would bind yourself to the other person and you'd stake your very life on that bond. And covenant-based relationships aren't what you do for me. It's all about what I'm going to do for you. Probably best expressed in what a bride and a groom say to each other on their wedding day, with all that I am and all that I have, I give myself to you till death do we part. Now one of the covenant-based relationships in the Bible that gets a lot of ink, and I think it gets a lot of ink is, is so that God can show us what a covenant-based uh, relationship looks like, is, is the relationship between David and Jonathan. And what's interesting about this friendship is that on paper, they actually should be the worst of enemies because Jonathan is son to King Saul, firstborn son. He's the prince. He's the next in line. And when God rejects Saul as king and anoints David as king, essentially, that whole thing of, of, of Jonathan being king is, is taken right off his off his lap, out of his hands, and it's given to this young start. If, if anyone is justified uh, to hate David, it's Jonathan. But where Jonathan's father, saw intensely seeks David out to kill him, Jonathan seeks David out to show him said To enter into this covenant based relationship where he is going to stake his whole life on it. In fact, there's uh, that beautiful scene in, in, in 1 Samuel verse 20 when Jonathan hands over to David his robe and his belt and, and, and his sword um, because a, a covenants in that day were rooted, there was a ceremony um, that established them and and, and that, that was part of the ceremony. And it, it, it's beautiful because in, in handing these things over to David, Jonathan is saying, I'm, I'm handing over my princely status to you. I am acknowledging you as my king. And sure enough, Jonathan's dad, Saul, does try to kill David. And then in 1 Samuel 20, David and Jonathan find each other. And David's first words to him is, because of the covenant, show me said. Show me this unfailing, undying loyalty. That you're going to be faithful to me at all costs. And then a little bit later in the conversation, in verses 14 to 17 of 1 Samuel 20, Jonathan says back to David, yeah, David, I might die over this. My father actually might kill me. And, and, and if that happens, would you remember the covenant? And let's extend this covenant, not just me to you, you to me, but let's extend this to our families. Your family for my family. My family for, for, for your family. Let's swear this has said to each other. 
In fact, I love how Jonathan puts this in verse 14. He says, David, would you show me the hesed like the Lord's hesed? Like the Lord's hesed. Because you don't know this. That's what the whole Bible's about. It's about the Lord's hesed. It goes all the way back to Abraham, where God shows up to him and says, I want relationship with you, Abraham, and not just you and me, but my family and your family. And a little bit later, Abraham says, well, how do I know that you're not going to forsake me? How do I know that you're not going to abandon me? So God says, well, let's, let's have a covenant-making ceremony. Covenants in the ancient world were, were, were literally cut. They were, they were cut in blood. Look at this text from Jeremiah 34, verse 18. Those who have violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will treat like that calf that they cut in two and then walked between its pieces. See, when a, when a covenant was, was established, the ceremony consisted of getting an animal or animals and, and, and cutting those animals in two, pushing them to the side with their blood flowing in the middle, creating an aisle where both parties now are going to walk down that aisle, put their feet in the blood to say to the other person that I am swearing my life to you, I am swearing has said to you, and if I am unfaithful in any way, may I be cut to pieces like these animals. And I think in one of the most dramatic moments in the biblical story in Genesis 15 is when God says to Abraham, Abraham, okay, go get the animals. Abraham knows exactly what God is saying. There's going to be a ceremony. Abraham knows what to do with those animals. Doesn't he need to be told by God? He splits them in half. He creates this aisle of blood. And one of the most stunning things in the Bible is that God came down walked down that aisle, put his feet in the blood to say, Abraham, we are bound to each other. We are eternally bound. And it's not just me to you, but it's to your family and to your descendants. And nothing, absolutely nothing in all the earth can separate my love from you. Nothing. And if that wasn't enough, when it's Abraham's turn to get up and now it's his turn to walk down the aisle and put his feet in the blood, he never does it. It's because God does it a second time. And I almost just see God saying to Abraham, Abraham, as good as you are, you're a good man. You will never be to me what I'm going to be to you. You're going to be unfaithful. Your family's going to be unfaithful in this covenant. Your descendants are going to be unfaithful. And I don't want you to walk. That won't be on you. And God, for a second time, came down, walked down that aisle, put his feet in the blood to say, your failure, your unfaithfulness, it's going to be on me. And then later you go into the story and Abraham's family becomes this great nation and God renews that covenant. He asks 
Israel now to approach him like a bride, and God comes down that day like a bridegroom, and Moses is, is presiding over this ceremony, um, this wedding as, as, as the pastor. Blood is sprinkled on all the people to just kind of renew these vows. We're bound together. Nothing can separate you from my love. And then soon after this, Moses has the audacity to ask God, God, I know you've been good to us. You revealed yourself to us. You've bound yourself to us. But I want to see your face. God says, Moses, you can't see my face. You see my face, it'll kill you. But God wants Moses, God wants his people to know who he is. So he says, Moses, how about if I put you in a cleft in a rock? And he puts Moses in a cleft in a rock and, and God passes by. And he said to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, I'm merciful and gracious. I'm slow to anger and I'm abounding in steadfast love. I'm abounding. My heart explodes with hesed and faithfulness. And I will keep hesed for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. If you want to know, like, what's at the heart of God, it's faithfulness drenched in hesed. In fact, if you even know the story I'm just talking about, Israel can hardly get outside their wedding day with God, and, and there's the whole golden calf incident. I mean, the day that God takes Israel to be his bride, they don't even get on the honeymoon, and they're already in bed with another lover. And Moses just runs to God, and he, the only appeal he can make is, God, you can't leave us. You can't forsake us. You're bound to us. God, according, according to your hesed. Please. Of course God can't leave him. Because this is who God says that he is. David. If you know the story about King David, his gross sin, um, having an affair with, with, with one of his best friend's wife, and then he covers it up by killing his best friend, and finally he is cut to the heart over this sin. And he writes Psalm 51 when, it, when he's cut to the heart, and again, it's the same thing. The first words out of his mouth, God, God, God. The only appeal I can make, according to your said, your undying you're unending, you're unmerited, you're unfailing. Love, would you please blot out my transgressions? Because this is who God is. God says, My heart, it abounds with his said, it explodes. And the reason why God can't let his people go, the reason why he can't ever abandon them, the reason why he is intensely and eternally bound to them, it's his, it's his hesed. Do you know the hesed of God? This is a massive game changer. 
For me personally, it means the most amazing thing. It means that God will love me. He will not forsake me. He will not abandon me. Even if I make a complete mess of my life, he will not let me go. And Jonathan says to David, don't just show me and my family said. Show me the said of the Lord. And David did. Because years later, Jonathan and Saul will die in battle. David will be made king. And then years after that, David will remember this covenant that he made for Jonathan. It will cause him to ask, hey, is there anyone left over in Jonathan's family that I can show said to? And this is so ironic because in the ancient world, any time a line of a king moved from one family to, the, to another family, this family would wipe out the entire family of that previous line. Is there anyone from, from, from Jonathan's family that I can show has said to, and they say, yeah, there's actually one of his sons still living. His name is Mephibosheth. Here's what we know about Mephibosheth. I mean, think about it. He's son to Jonathan, which means he's grandson to King Saul, which means he grew up in a palace as a prince. But on one tragic day, when he was five years old, his dad Jonathan, his grandpa Saul, are killed in battle. Not only did he lose his dad, not only did he lose life in the palace, But the text also tells us that on this tragic day, his nurse dropped him and he lost the ability to ever walk again. He was lame. So at the young age of five, he gives himself a new name, Mephibosheth, which means one covered in shame. And now as this orphan, he goes and he lives in hiding in fear that King David will will wipe him out to a place the Bible calls Lodabar. Lodabar means a wasteland. His princely status, his life has completely become a wasteland. And now it's decades later, he's probably in his mid-twenties. He gets a knock on his door. The king wants to see you. He can't run. He can't hide. He's carried into David's presence. He's about ready in his mind to meet his end. The text literally says that in David's presence, he just flails around on the ground. And David looks at him and says, Mephibosheth, do not be afraid. I will surely show you Kindness has said, for the sake of your father, Jonathan, I will restore your life, and you, Mephibosheth, you will sit at my table. That is David saying to him, you will be like a son to me. In that moment, his life in Lodabar, in a wasteland, as an orphan, is totally changed and transformed. He is son to a king in the palace. And I hope you know said personally, because I do, 
And I think it's the most powerful reality there is in the world. If you want to know what changes the world, if you want to know what changes a life, if you want to know what changes a marriage, if you want to know what changes a family, if you want to know what changes a community, it's when people show the kindness of the Lord. It's, it's being the recipient of undeserved, unconditional, unfailing kindness and grace. And this is why Jesus came to the world. Jesus came to the world to show us the hesed of God. His undying, his unmerited, his unconditional, his unfailing love. Two times in, in Jesus' ministry, he will say this clause. He, he will say, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In fact, there's probably a third time. Mark records this as well, and the context is different from the first two times that he says it in, in Matthew. Uh, but let's look at these in Matthew uh, Jesus says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and then go and learn what this means. And here he says, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. And he's saying this both to his critics who are criticizing him for the kind of people that he hangs around with and the people that he eats with. So I thought, okay, Jesus says, go and learn what this means. So I thought to myself, I'll do that this week. And what I found is that this is a quote from Hosea 6, verse 6, where God is saying to Israel, I desired mercy. The word there is the Hebrew word hesed. I desired hesed, not sacrifice. And we learned this last week. Sacrifice represents all of their religious activity. It's going to church. It's reading their Bibles. It's saying their prayers. It's doing good. It's being spiritual. And God is essentially saying to Israel, all this stuff is meaningless to me. It's, 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 it's worthless. If there's no hesed. God wants us to be a people of hesed a people whose hearts and lives abound, explode with Hesed. On another occasion, Jesus says, be merciful. But it's not just be merciful. He roots it. He says, be merciful. As your heavenly Father is merciful. Show Hesed the way your heavenly Father shows Hesed. And I think the place where Jesus really blows this up is in his parable of the Good Samaritan. He tells this parable because he's having a debate with a Torah expert and they're talking, discussing uh, what the greatest commandment is. In fact, they both agree. They both agree that it's Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, which says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and put with that Leviticus 19, verse 18, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, for them, it was easy for them to link these verses together because 
in the Hebrew language, uh, these two verses share a word, ve'ahavta, which is used less than a handful of times in the entire Old Testament. Ve'ahavta means shall love. Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, has ve'ahavta, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Leviticus 19, verse 18, also has ve'ahavta, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Quick rabbit trail. The other place where ve'ahavta is found is Micah 6, 8. You shall, ve'ahavta, you shall love mercy. And the other time where it's used, so you have three times where God says, you shall love me with everything you have. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And you shall love hesed. Jeremiah 31 verse 3, ve'ahavta. God says, and I shall love you, Israel, with an everlasting love. I'm not done, though, with the the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, The reason why Jesus tells this parable is because even though they've agreed on what the greatest commandment is, the Torah expert says, well, Jesus, who's my neighbor? Who is the person I'm commanded to love as myself? And Jesus tells this parable to answer that question And it's a fair question because if you go to Leviticus 19, verse 18, you will see when God says you shall love your neighbor as yourself, it's love your fellow Israelite. Love fellow Christians like yourself. Jesus tells this parable to blow this thing up because he's going to end this parable by looking at this Torah expert And asking him, who is the neighbor in the story? And so the parable isn't just told to flush out what Hesed looks like and how we are to live it in our world where we see people in the ditch and we use our resources and our our, our means and our heart breaks. We bring healing to people who are wounded. No, that's not the only reason Jesus tells this story. He tells them to answer this question, who is my neighbor? And this guy can't even answer the question. All he can say is, well, the one who showed mercy. He can't say the Samaritan. Because Jews intensely hated Samaritans. But Jesus is telling this parable to say, your neighbor is not just your fellow Israelite. It includes even your worst enemy. Love him. Because this is God's heart. His, His love reaches way beyond his covenant people, Israel. It reaches to even those who hate him, who despise him. It reaches to every single person on the face of the earth. And this isn't just a New Testament idea. There are strong hints of this already in the Old Testament. I mean, the story of Jonah. Jonah, I need you to go to Nineveh. I need you to go to Nineveh to preach 
uh, justice to them so they can experience my c- compassion. Now listen, to be fair to Jonah, this would be like telling a Jew to go to Nazi Germany and to preach the justice and mercy of God to them. This is why when God says go there, he goes in the opposite direction, but God uses a whale and a resurrection to finally get Jonah over there, and Jonah preaches the justice and the grace of God, and God relents. He shows them hesed, and Jonah's angry. He's like, I knew it. I knew your heart. Slow to anger, abounding in said. I knew it didn't just apply to us. I knew it applied to them. It applies to everyone. Do you love said? Is your life abounding in said? Are you merciful? Is your heavenly father as merciful? Are we seeing people in the ditch? Are we offering our strength to their brokenness? How about your enemies right now? Come on, who are they? Who are they? Let them come to your mind. Do you love them? Are you showing them kindness? How about people who have hurt you? How about people who have mistreated you? How about people who have abused you? Have you forgiven them? Do you understand what makes Christianity different from every relation, uh, religion on the face of the earth? <laughs> we have a God who tells us to love our enemies, to pray for them, to bless them, to do good to them. Listen, we will never show this love if we don't first know it. And I don't mean know it from a sermon. I don't mean know it as a doctrine. I mean know it because we have personally experienced it. Have you personally experienced the kindness of God? His unfailing, unmerited, unconditional love? I'll tell you the people who most know Hesed and then who show it are the Mephibosheths, the cripples, the estranged, people whose lives are are, are in a wasteland people who feel unworthy. Because whether we know this or not, apart from the hesed of God, we are all Mephibosheth. We're all crippled. We're all estranged. We're all orphaned. We're all living in a wasteland. But the Bible is here to tell us that we have a king. <laughs> a king who, like David, remembers the covenant that age-old covenant that he made with Abraham. And this king, he came to the world to be faithful to that covenant, to walk 
between the parts in our place to be cut to pieces for our unfaithfulness. He can't let us go. He can't forsake us. He's bound to us. And this king, he will seek us out so he can lavish upon us his kindness and his mercy. And this king will say to us, sit at my table. Be a son and daughter in my family. In fact, in Jesus' last recorded prayer, he prays one of the most amazing things when he prays, Father, would you love them just as you love me? That's this king's heart for us. He doesn't want us orphaned. He doesn't want us outside of his love. And and stop and just let this settle into your mind and heart. Our father loves us every bit as much as he loves his own son. And think about how much God loves his son. And see, when we personally know this love, the unmerited, unconditional, unfailing love of God that is in Jesus Christ, we will live loved. Many of us talk about knowing the love of God. We, we, we sing about the love of God, but we don't live loved. We're still trying to prove ourselves in so many ways. We're still trying... Uh, to show ourselves to be worthy. We're still feeling this need to avenge our hurts, to be on top, to win at all costs. I'm telling you what, when you know the love of God, you will live approved in every way because the king of the universe, he loves you because he loves you with an everlasting love. And as Paul says, nothing, and all the earth can separate from us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. God, I pray that we can all personally know that love. The Father's mercy. His heart that is abounding in said, And God, as we know that love, that we could then show that love to a world that so desperately needs it. Being your people in your world, for your world, a world that you love for the cause of Christ. Amen.